Okay, everybody, this is David Banner, author of Frame Shifting, A Path to Wholeness. This is Chapter 8, Consciously Broadening Your Frame. Uh, as you continue to broaden the view you have of your reality, as you broaden your frame, as you, as you see more, as you expand your body, mind, and your emotions, you realize that you are none of these. You discover that you have a body, have a mind, and have emotions, but you are the aware presence that observes all three. Haven't you had the experience of an eternal part of yourself that's been there all along as you have aged? Uh, I have just turned 80, and I can tell you that I still feel young in my spirit. And that's what I'm talking about. Your spirit never ages. Mind, body, emotions, yes, those age. But your spirit never does. <clears throat> this is my true identity. Anything else you choose to identify with yourself is intrinsically insecure because it's temporary. All the forms change, including the form of your body. This is just the way life works. All forms change over time. It's a law. Your feelings change, your mind changes, your body changes, but the eternal you stays the same the whole time. And this is the important thing for you to remember. <clears throat> so seen from this perspective, it's downright silly to identify with anything transitory since all forms do pass away. Anything in your world that is a form, and this includes inner thought forms like beliefs, attitudes, values, expectations, assumptions, and all the outer forms like people, places, and events will all pass away. Guaranteed. So why identify yourself with any of those forms? This is a recipe for insecurity. Instead, I'm inviting you to let the ego fade into the background. You don't have to stomp it in the ground. Allow the emergence of the still small voice that is the voice of your unique spirit to emerge. <clears throat> in doing so, you tap into the divine intelligence and then you can move with the rhythms of the universe. You can cooperate with life rather than defying it all the time. <clears throat> Remember, the ego was created as the choice to be separated from God, to be as God. The ego wants to resist how things are rather than accepting what shows up. Resistance is its forte and its raison d'etre. But if you ignore the ego temptation to resist what is, you will discover that life is a thrilling adventure of letting go to the movement of your spirit, which is connected to the spirit that animates everything. What can be more secure than that? However, do not naively allow your ego to let this happen without a struggle. <clears throat> the ego knows this means its own death, and it will try every trick in the book to keep you from allowing spirit, infinite intelligence, to rule your life. So much of what passes for uh, spiritual growth these days is just a subtle trick of the ego to get you thinking you are growing spiritually but you're just getting a shinier, buffed-up ego. 
The same spirit that animates your life animates everything in the infinity of the cosmos. When you identify with the ocean rather than a tiny wave on the surface, insecurity just naturally drops away. I can honestly say I'm not the least bit afraid of dying, since I know that I never really die. Yes, I can let go of my body, and this will surely mark the death of my ego identity, but is this a bad thing? Now, you got to realize the ego is very shifty, as I just mentioned. I recommend you not be deluded into thinking that enlightenment is just a shinier, newer, more positive dream. Enlightenment is no self, as one of my favorite authors talks about it. In other words, when you're actually enlightened, you don't have any identity at all as a separate self. Any self is a waking dream. Even the idea of a higher self is just a classier, less oppressive dream. So if you decide you want just that, there are techniques to attain that state, and it's infinitely more comfortable than the victim state, which passes for reality for most people. <clears throat> My sense is that enlightenment is rarely achieved on Earth because the ego is so tenacious and tricky and it will stop at nothing to avoid its death. But some do make it. It seems to require a full-out dedication to achieve that goal. <clears throat> nothing can stop you. I am not there yet, and I may never be there, but I do know what's required. The tools I explain in this book will lead you towards enlightenment. They will lead you to a more positive, better, and comfortable dream. For now, that's what I'm after. But, of course, the end process is enlightenment and dropping the ego. So, with all the tools I've shown you, they have a common denominator to create an, create an expanded experience for yourself of who you are in truth. That's what the Enneagram does. That's what all these tools do. You come to realize that there is just one self in which we all move and have our being. And we could call this the universal self. And we're just an, a, a small articulation of that self. Any self that's smaller than the whole is by definition an ego identity. This is not bad in the way we've come in our dualistic thinking to talk about good and bad. The ego isn't bad. It's just limiting, that's all. And it's incorrect as a definition of who you are. And it is a dream, a waking dream. So you don't want to smash the ego, kill it or repress it. We just want to rise up to a level where it doesn't run our lives. One way to expand your mental frame is to generate possibilities for yourself. In Joel Barker's video, The Power of Vision, Barker tells a story of a successful black man who returns to public school 121, his elementary school in Brooklyn, to give the commencement address. He begins his talk in typical motivational style by saying to the sixth graders, you can become anything you want. You can go to college and study whatever you want and have a rewarding, fulfilling career. 
As he looks into the eyes and the body language of these sixth graders, he realizes they don't understand what he's talking about at all. To them, the future consists of four major options, selling drugs, becoming a sports figure, becoming an attainment figure, or enter into the family pattern of work. Going to college is not on their screen of possibilities. <clears throat> so Mr. Lang threw down his speech and challenged the students. He said, if any of you graduate from high school, I will promise to give you a four-year scholarship of any, for any college or university you can get into. And further, to that end, I will hire tutors and scholars in the community to get your skills up to speed so you can be competitive. The kids were stunned. Is this guy serious? Yes, he was. The statistics from the past for this school were grim. Of the 42 students in the audience, maybe 10% would finish high school, and virtually none would go to college. After Lang's speech and the creation of a support network for the kids in the community, 40 of the 42 graduated from high school and 39 of them completed college. To my way of thinking, this is a much more powerful technique for changing people's lives than a thousand United Way programs. What he did was this. He created a possibility, therefore unknown to those kids. This is a very powerful way to frame and facilitate the expansion of a frame. Vision. In his landmark book, The Path of Least Resistance, Robert Fritz describes the power of a vision to change people's experience of their lives. To utilize the power of vision, use this metaphor. Imagine a rubber band stretched between your hands. Imagine one hand represents your current reality or the factual way things are in your life without any complaints or exaggeration or anything, just how things are. And the other hand represents your vision of the future that you want to create. Stretch the band between your hands. This stretched rubber band represents what Fritz calls the structural tension that naturally exists between current reality, where you are now, and your vision of a preferred future, where you want to go. The tension must resolve itself. It cannot stay in this tension mode. There are two ways to resolve it. One, you hold the vision tenaciously and let the current reality move into the vision, therefore manifesting it in your life. Or, number two, you give up on the vision. It's impossible, not practical. People love me if I become that person, and so forth. Most people choose number two, and then they wonder why their lives are so drab. If you check, everyone who has achieved greatness in their lives has tenaciously held on to your, their vision no matter what obstacles came up. There's a story about Thomas Edison, and he's trying to invent a light bulb. And he's failed a thousand times, according to the story. So his view was, well, I've discovered a thousand ways not to make an electric light bulb. In other words, he still held on to his vision. The person that comes up with a victor, victim posture cannot achieve their vision. A person who achieves their vision is a creator, a person who comes up with excuses, rationalizations, complaints, 
is playing the victim and justifying their future, their failure to manifest their future. Which do you prefer? What do you learn after you adopt the role of creators that your word is law in the universe? If you hold your vision tenaciously, with intention, you cannot fail to manifest your vision. Through this principle of structural tension, the vision must re be resolved in favor of the vision. This is what Fritz calls the path of least resistance. You must succeed if you hold tight to your vision, despite all the ego's tricks to have you sell out to how things are now. Joel Barker, in his book, uh, talks about how vision is like a rope across a raging river. This is a very good metaphor. Without a vision, we move into the future with vague hopes and dreams, but nothing really to hang on to. With a powerful and compelling vision, we hold on to the rope of the vision attached to the future desired state on the other side of the river. As the currents of life buffet us around, we hold tight to the vision, the rope, and slowly but surely we end up with our preferred future. Like Fritz above, if you hold on to the vision and don't sell out for being reasonable or practical, you cannot help but manifest that vision. Now, of course, if we're five foot five inches tall and weigh 120 pounds and have a vision of becoming heavyweight champion of the world, this is not going to happen. There are physical limits to what we can accomplish in the world of form. But with the passion of a true and realistic vision, the possibilities are enormous, way beyond what we might have thought possible. So I'm encouraging you all to adopt a creator frame for uh, broadening into your future. First thing you need to do is have a daily meditation practice using your breath or a mantra or an ascension attitude, which I've talked about. Have the experience daily of quieting your mind and touching into the true depth of yourself. Dipping into the ascendant or God or the sacred or infinite intelligence has the effect of weakening the ego's grip on your reality. Number two, get out into nature regularly. Go outside, walk around, look at the trees, look at the flowers, look at the animals. Practice putting your attention in many directions and places. This is another very powerful thing. If you can move your attention into the various chakras of your body or out into the cosmos or in the four directions, just extending your consciousness out of your normal view of the body can be very liberating. <clears throat> the next thing you can do to broaden your frame is examine your belief systems. Avatar has a wonderful exercise with this. If you notice a recurring pattern in your life that does not serve you, ask this question. What would a person have to believe to experience this? If you're willing to be open to this answer, it may surprise you. Your experience reality is dictated by what you believe. Wayne Dyer, who died just a few years ago, had a book with a very accurate title. I won't see it till I believe it. Most people use the opposite expression. 
I won't believe it till I see it. But that's not the truth. You can't see it until you believe it. The great anthropologist Margaret Mead and her team visited a remote island where the inhabitants had never before <coughs> been visited by white folks. Mead and her group anchored the ship about a mile from the shore and took rowboats in to see the natives. The natives were very friendly and inspected the rowboats, which were very similar to their dugout canoes. But when Meade pointed to their ship on the horizon, the natives actually couldn't physically see it. Apparently, they had nothing in their past or their race memory that their minds could associate with such a shape. So it was literally invisible to them. I know this is kind of mind-blowing, but this has been documented by uh, Margaret Mead and other anthropologists. So, take a look at what you believe, because that's what you're going to experience. The next one is practice some form of empathetic practice. Okay, using the Enneagram or some other tool like the Myers-Briggs personality type indicator, DISC, Truth Colors, there are a lot of personality type indicators, to see how others behave. Have is not right or wrong, it's just different from you. The risk of any of these typological, uh, psychological typing systems is the risk of stereotyping somebody. This is not empathy. The primary purpose of any of these tools, especially the Enneagram, is self-inquiry. We need to watch ourselves in the ego state to see the repetitive patterns of thought and behavior. Then we can observe ourselves and consciously change our behavior. Also, the tools to good is good to see another person's behavior that might be a certain type. You can then make a response that the person could receive without being defensive. You gotta remember that all humans are unique, but in the ego state, we all have patterns that are predictable, and this is very useful when using another a tool. One such tool is called the Emotional Freedom Technique, EFT. We can exaggerate a person's statement about themselves while tapping on the body at certain points. We can break the energy bond in the body. You can use this technique for addiction, old patterns of grief, and it works about 80% of the time. Emotional Freedom Technique, you might want to check into that. By consciously adopting a creator frame, you will slowly chip away at the debilitating effects of the ego and emerge into a new sense of yourself that automatically moves with the new rhythms every moment of the cosmos and finding joy and wisdom in doing so. Again, the ego is not bad. It's just limited, incorrect identity that we've all adopted as our own. Using these frame-shifting tools, we can move into an expanded sense of identity of self and to more appreciation for the wonderful differences of others in this human mosaic we call the human family. So your goal and the goal of frame-shifting is to become more and more empathetic, consciously aware of ourselves and others, and live deliberately, as Harry Palmer, the founder of Avatar, is fond of saying. As I've been arguing in this book, we are literally creating our experience with the software of our minds, our beliefs, attitudes, and values. 
So a person with a holistic perspective of the world will naturally create a world of integration and balance. If a critical mass of these of people like you and I and others begin to adopt a more holistic frame, uh, we could expect the world to reflect that picture. So uh, hunger projects, social programs, working with the oppressed, this is all good. But what's really going to change the world is people with a much broader frame of reality, people that express love rather than fear. Okay, that's good enough for this one. I'll see you on the next one.